Amen. Throughout the scriptures, we find several saints being referred to as beloved. For example, it's in 2 Samuel where David memorialized Saul and Jonathan, and he did this by calling them both beloved. In Daniel chapter 9, we also find the angel Gabriel referring to the prophet Daniel as the greatly beloved of the Lord. In Colossians chapter 4, we find Paul referring to Luke as the beloved physician. And in Matthew chapter 3, we find God the Father speaking forth from heaven, and he there refers to the Lord Jesus as his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Now, as we consider these examples of those who are called beloved, I should take a moment to point out that there is a difference between the word love and the, the person who is beloved. Yeah, yeah. when we consider this, this concept of being loved versus being beloved, it's important to understand the difference. And, and in order to understand the difference, I want to take a moment to consider the old English prefix be. According to etymology experts, the old English prefix be, it was used in order to intensify a word. For example, you know, there are those who are wondering about things, but then there are those who be wonder. And and those who be wonder are usually uh, filled with an intense sense of wonder. And so it's not just wander or or, or having a a wonder about something, but it's an intense sense of wonder. And and then there's the word bewitched. You know, bewitched is not only the title of a 1960s TV show that introduced kids to witchcraft, but the word bewitched was also used of those who have been greatly affected by witchcraft. Or how about the word besmirched? You know, uh, the, the word besmirched was actually used of those who were smirched over and over and over again. So much so that they can't even imagine how many times they've been smirched. Those people were besmirched. Uh, and, and then there's the word be maddened. Well, the person who's be maddened is filled with an intense madness after spending $70 on Madden NFL 24. So you have that. But seriously, you know, as we turn our attention back to this word beloved, it's important to understand that this word, it, it not only refers to those who are loved, but it refers to those who are loved with great intensity. Those who are beloved are loved, but with an intense form of love. And it's here in our text today where we find Paul referring to his audience as believers who were greatly beloved of the Lord. Now, with this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering how beloved believers are grateful believers. Secondly, we'll see that beloved believers are worshipful believers, Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that beloved believers are faithful believers. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's beginning to express his gratitude for the beloved believers who were there at the church in Thessalonica. And as you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul spent the first 12 verses of this chapter helping his audience to understand that the return of our Redeemer would be preceded by several prophetic events, which include, first of all, the great apostasy as more and more Christians begin to fall away from the church. Then that is followed by the rapture of the church, which coincides with the removal of the restrainer, which then that is followed by the rise of the Antichrist and the seven years of tribulation. 
And now that he's taken the time to set the second coming of Christ onto a proper prophetic timeline, we find Paul then shifting his attention back to the words of exhortation that we find here in our text today as he you know, helped the church in Thessalonica to understand the importance of becoming beloved believers. And so with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, if you would begin with me here at verse 13. Here Paul declares, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, Here in our text today, we find Paul, he's assuring the believers there at the church in Thessalonica that they were greatly beloved by the Lord. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word beloved, well, it's translated from the Greek word agapeo, agapeo. And and listen, this Greek word agapeo, well, it's used in reference to the sacrificial love that sinners receive when we trust in Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the love of the Lord, and in this way we become the beloved of the Lord. And knowing that the Christians there in Thessalonica had received this gracious love or agapeo love of God, Paul refers to them here as brethren who were beloved by the Lord. And it's in similar fashion that it was back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where he actually called them beloved believers. That's what they were. They were beloved believers who were greatly loved by the Lord. And while it's true that Paul referred to the Christians there in Thessalonica as beloved believers, it's also true that Paul was also a a Christian who himself was called a beloved believer. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's verse 15, where the Apostle Peter refers to Paul as his beloved brother. And seeing how Paul provides us then with an excellent example of what it means to be a beloved believer Well, I want to take some time to consider the characteristics that that were true of Paul and then should also be true of us as we become the beloved believers of the Lord. And with this as the focus, let's take a closer look at our text today. If you would look with me there, backing up, beginning at verse 13 once again. Here again, Paul declares, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. I want to stop right there. I want to consider the way that Paul here was giving thanks for the beloved believers there in Thessalonica. And just to be clear, the phrase uh, bound to give thanks, it's translated from two Greek words, which, which was used of those who were filled with this goodwill that results in gratitude. The, he, he was giving thanks to God by expressing his gratitude for how God helped these, these Gentiles to become Christians. What this means then is that Paul and his traveling companions, uh, after spending time there in Thessalonica, they were compelled to give thanks. And they they were giving thanks for the beloved believers who were serving the Lord there in Thessalonica. And with that, we we find Paul here. He he has expressed gratitude for those Christians. and, 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 And this was his pattern. This was the way Paul was. Paul was a man who was constantly giving God thanks. He was a man filled with gratitude as he considered 
the way that the Lord had, you know, helped other people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we constantly see him giving thanks to the letters in, in, uh, to, to, to the churches that he sent letters to. For example, it's in Romans chapter one, it's verse eight. There Paul used the same Greek word, which means gratitude. He, we find him using this word uh, by declaring this. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So yeah, Paul was grateful for the Christians there at the church in Rome. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he also declared, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul expressed his gratitude by declaring, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then in Philippians chapter 1, Paul shares the same sort of sentiment by writing this. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul presents his gratitude for the Christians in Colossae by declaring this. He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for, the, for all the saints. And then finally, it's in his letter to the beloved brother named Philemon. That's where Paul declares this. He says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, as we consider all of these verses found in all of these different epistles, there's no doubt that Paul was a man who was filled with gratitude. Paul was a man who was filled with incredible gratitude and specifically for the beloved believers who were serving the Lord uh, all throughout the Gentile world. And as we consider the way that Paul took the time to express his gratitude for all these other believers, we must not fail to realize that beloved believers are grateful believers. Beloved believers are grateful believers. I like the way that Paul puts it back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember, it's back in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 where he said this, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Think about that for a moment. In everything, give thanks. In other words, in everything, show gratitude. Because this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. If you want to know what God's will is for you, it's for you to be grateful. It's God's will for every Christian to become beloved believers who are filled with gratitude. That being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking Am I a Christian who is grateful? Am I a Christian who is filled with gratitude? Or am I constantly grumbling about everyone and everything? Are we following in the footsteps of Paul? And are we becoming more like Paul by expressing our gratitude for our brothers and our sisters in Christ? Or are we just too busy complaining about the Christians who have offended us at some point in time. With these questions in mind, I want to remind you about the challenge that Paul presented to the church in Colossae. It's actually Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. There Paul declares, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
In other words, the words that come out of our mouth should be words of gratitude. We should be grateful believers. And we should be not only grateful in the things that we do, but in, in the things that we say, whatever, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Now listen, I, I recognize how easy it is to complain. I, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to be someone who never complains. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to complain about the things that we don't like. It, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction. That when something happens we don't like, it's like just, just open the mouth, complaints just fall out. And yet the beloved believer is the Christian who expresses gratitude to God for all the, the ways that he has blessed us. And, and listen, the, the beloved believer will not only express their gratitude to God for all the things that he's done to bless us, but you know we will also want to express our gratitude for one another as we learn how to walk in the love of the Lord. Simply put, the beloved believer is not only grateful for the grace that we've received from God, but we're also grateful for the grace that we have in the spiritual family that God has surrounded us with. You know that, that the church that God has brought together here at Calvary South Austin is, is a form of his grace? That he has graciously brought this church family together? It's hard to see that when all you can do is complain about everything wrong here. It's hard to see that you know, this is actually God's grace being realized in all of these relationships. And in order to further grasp the gratitude uh, that should be in the heart of the beloved believer, I want to consider how Paul describes it in the letter that he sent to the church in Ephesus. And so hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you would, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You see, it's here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians where we find Paul. He's connecting the dots between the gratitude that we have for God's grace and the gratitude that we experience here within our fellowship of faith. And I want to consider the way that, that Paul puts it here in Ephesians chapter 5. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 17. Here Paul declares, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there at the church in Ephesus to understand what the will of the Lord is. And so the will of the Lord is not only that we're always giving thanks for all things, but that we become sober-minded and filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can become grateful believers who are singing praises to God corporately. That together, corporately, you know, we would want to sing the praises of God with hearts filled with gratitude for the grace that we've received. And as we sing the praises of God corporately with a heart that's filled with gratitude for his grace, we begin to become those beloved believers who learn how to submit to one another in the fear of God. That's what he says, verses 20 and 21, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In other words, those who are walking according to the will of God 
we soberly sing the praises of God with a heart that's filled with gratitude as we as we worship God together here within our Christian community, and as we sing the praises of the Lord with a heart that's filled with gratitude, we end up becoming those beloved believers who are grateful for those who are also here within our fellowship of faith, and we, and we demonstrate that gratitude by submitting to one another, by serving one another, by growing in our gratitude for one another. And in this way, we become a gracious church where beloved believers learn how to bear with one another in the love of the Lord, realizing that because you're beloved of the Lord and I'm beloved of the Lord, we ought to be beloved together. In this way, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace according to the will of the Lord. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, Beloved believers are not only grateful to God for the fellowship of faith that he's given us, but beloved believers will also become worshipful Christians who are serving the Lord. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul reminding his readers about the way that unbelievers are able to become beloved believers. And with that, I want to back up and start reading again at verse 13. Here Paul declares, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what an incredible sentence. And Paul here is helping his audience to understand that those who embrace the gospel of grace are those who also become the beloved of the Lord. And to explain my point, I should remind you that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Think about that for a moment. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. And while it's true that God so loved every person in the entire world, well, it's also true that those who believe in Jesus are those who become beloved of the Lord. So so God loves the world and wants to save them, and yet you have to trust in Jesus to become beloved by the Lord. Now, before I get too far ahead of the point that Paul is making... I want to take some time to consider his explanation of the way that God sovereignly ordained our salvation before the foundations of creation. Or to put it in the words of Paul, God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. Wow, that that word chose, it's found there in verse 13. It's translated from a Greek word, which in this context... It speaks of those who are preferred and elevated by selection of election. And we must not fail to notice that this choice, well, according to Paul, it was made before the earth was created. Let's consider again how Paul puts it there in verse 13. Here again he declares, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. Now listen, when Paul tells us that God chose us from the beginning, he was effectively informing us that God made this choice 
before he established the times and the boundaries of our habitations here on the earth, which is located within the universe that he created at the beginning of time. And while I can't really grasp how God, who is infinite, makes choices and decisions, and how does the thought process of an infinite God you know, actually happen, I don't understand any of that. And yet we know, according to Paul here, that God made this choice before the beginning of the universe. In other words, God the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And what this means then is that Jesus was chosen to be our Savior before we could be chosen in him. To prove my point, let's consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 13. Here again, he declares, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for what? For salvation. Now, I want to stop there. I want to consider how God chose us for salvation before the beginning of time. And in order to choose us for salvation, think about it, it was necessary for God the Father to first determine a plan of salvation. How can he choose us for salvation, you know, without first choosing a plan of salvation? So God clearly chose a plan of salvation and then chose us for that salvation. And with that being the case, you might be interested to know here that Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God who was foreordained before the foundation of the world to serve as our substitutionary sacrifice. That's a decision that God the Father made before he chose us for salvation. And now it's in Jesus that we've been chosen for salvation according to the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Let's consider how Paul puts it again here in verse 13. Here he declares, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through what? Through sanctification by the Spirit. So in other words, before he creates the universe, God the Father chose us for salvation in the Savior Jesus Christ. And knowing that we would never initiate this search for our own salvation, God the Father then sent the Holy Spirit to initiate this sanctification process through the sanctifying work by which unbelievers are then convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment and brought to a place where they realize they need Jesus to be saved. And then as we respond to this sanctifying conviction uh, of the Holy Spirit that helps us to see our need for Jesus, we then become beloved believers as we embrace the calling of Christ according to the truth of the gospel message. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in our text today. Look with me once again at verse 13 where he declares, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who become believers, beloved by the Lord, are those who embrace the gospel of truth. The beloved believer embraces the gospel of truth, and those who embrace the gospel of truth are those who answer the calling of Christ by faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. And just to be clear about this, the word called, which is found there in the middle of verse 14, it's actually translated from a Greek word, which in this context speaks of an official summons 
or an informal invitation. It's an official summons or an informal invitation. It's a calling that, that compels someone to come uh, uh, for the purpose of the invitation. And in order to better grasp the way that people are called to Christ with this sort of summons or, or informal invitation, it's important to understand that this invitation is actually the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the invitation by which we are called to Christ. And in order to wrap our minds around this, let's take some time to consider the parable that Jesus presents to uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. See, it's here in the 22nd chapter of Matthew where we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting this parable to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and it's in this parable where he compares the kingdom of heaven to a kingdom in which a certain king arranged a, a, a wedding party for his son, and, and so the king sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and yet those who were initially invited weren't willing to come. And then after you know, listening to all the excuses for why those invited you know, can't seem to you know, make, make plans to come, you know, the, the, the king then decides to send his servants out yet again in order to invite invite anyone and everyone. And we're going to jump into the middle of this parable here in Matthew chapter 22. So look with me there beginning at verse 9. Here we find this parabolic king declaring to his servants, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I'm guessing this guy was kicked out without a gift bag, but, uh, but simply because he didn't have the right wedding garment on. Think about that for a minute. The king sent invitations out to anyone willing to receive it. And while it's true that everyone was invited to attend this, this wedding feast, it, it's also true that those who wanted to answer the call Well, they were required to come covered with the proper wedding garments. And according to Jesus, those who refuse to receive the correct covering are cast out of the banquet. And yes, this is despite the fact that they received the calling. They received the invitation. They were invited. But then they were rejected because they rejected the covering. Notice again the conclusion of this parable. It's there in verse 14 where Jesus declares, Many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, the invitation is sent out to everyone. Whosoever will can come, regardless of social status, regardless of how good or bad you are, regardless of anything. Everyone's invited. And yet the only invite you know, the, the only people who respond to this invitation who are then also allowed to enter into the wedding banquet, well, they have to receive the proper attire, which is the wedding garment of God's grace. 
you have to be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to attend the wedding banquet. And it's sad to say that many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but they reject the, 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 the covering. In other words, they simply won't submit their lives to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they're rejecting the imputation of his righteousness. And so they're cast into outer darkness because of their own choices. Conversely, Christians are those who answer the call of Christ. They receive the invitation, they respond to the invitation, and they embrace the gospel of grace. And it's at that point in time when we obtain the glory of the Lord that Paul mentions here in our text today. At the point of our repentance and faith, we obtain the glory of the Lord through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're covered with the proper covering. And as we consider the way that that the righteousness of Jesus Christ covers the sins of those who will trust in his calling, well, we have to confess that all of this is made possible Because the Holy Spirit came and convicted us of our sins so that we might believe the the truth about the predetermined plan that God the Father put in motion when he foreordained his only begotten son before the foundation of the world so that he might come and serve as our substitutionary sacrifice there on the cross of Christ. And, And to sum all of that up, listen, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all play a role in the salvation of those who will receive the invitation and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, how can we not but worship our triune God? In light of all of these things, we should take some time to consider Paul's response to all of these incredible truths. And so let's turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to take another look here. Beginning at verse 13, Paul declares, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, I'm bound to give thanks to God for all of these things. And the reason why is because God is the one who decided to provide salvation to everyone who would simply embrace the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, as Paul says that he was bound, you know, that word bound, it's actually translated from a Greek word which could also be uh, rendered obligation. He's saying, I I have an obligation to, to be grateful to God for all these things that he has done. Paul was helping his audience to understand that Christians are obligated to give God the thanks because he's the one who has enabled us to become beloved believers. And as we consider this concept of being bound or obligated, uh, it might interest you to know that this is the same Greek word that Paul used in Romans 13, verse 8, where he says this, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. From this, we can see that every born-again believer is bound, or in other words, is obligated to now walk in the love of the Lord. 
We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved when we answer the calling of Christ, which is the gospel message. But those who are saved become beloved believers as we realize that we are now bound or obligated to walk according to the law, which is fulfilled in love. And you better believe that this begins with the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And I should remind you that the greatest commandment includes the call to worship and serve our Savior. Here's how Moses explains it in Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. And he begins in this way. It's Exodus 20, verse 1, where Moses writes, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. The Lord through Moses here was reminding his people that he alone is God. He alone is God, and with that being the case, the people were strictly forbidden from worshiping. That's, that, that's translated as bowing down before. That's, that's worship. They were for, forbidden from worshiping and serving false gods. What this means is that there's only one God, and he alone is worthy of being worshipped with acts of service. Not only that, but those who worship false gods, those who worship false gods with acts of service, they're actually failing then to walk in the love of the Lord. The person who is worshiping a false god by serving that false god is failing to love the Lord, the true God, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus rebuked the devil when the devil tempted him to worship Satan. And as a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. There we learn that the devil took Jesus up on, a, on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus placing his spin on the second commandment. It's, it's of course, the first and greatest commandment, but this is commandment number two by way of the, of the Decalogue. And, and I'll remind you, it's in Exodus 20, where the Lord forbid his people from bowing down before idols and serving them. And in, here in Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus, he's putting the positive spin on this commandment, loosely quoting from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And he does this by declaring this, you shall worship the Lord. Now, remember Exodus 20, you shall not bow down before the idols. You shall not serve them. Here in the positive sense, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So this is, this is the positive New Testament. You can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so you should. And from this, we see how beloved believers who embrace the gospel message of Jesus Christ 
are to become worshipful Christians who love to serve the Lord because the Lord loved us first. In order to connect the dots, Paul was bound to worship the Lord as he expressed his gratitude for the triune God who predetermined a plan of salvation by which sinners can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And as he considered the beloved believers who were there in Thessalonica, Paul just broke out in praise as he sang the, 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 the praises of the one who chose us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of the universe. And in light of Paul's example, we can see how beloved believers will become worshipful Christians who love to serve the Lord. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, beloved believers are not only grateful believers and beloved believers are not only worshipful believers, but beloved believers are also faithful believers. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter two. If you would, let's back up one more time and begin reading there at verse 13. It's there where Paul declares, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, as we take a closer look at verse 15, we must not fail to notice that, that, that you know, Paul was presenting this challenge for Christians to stand fast. Now, now, this is tough because in the last couple of years, I haven't been able to stand fast you know, just because of knee issues. And so this idea of standing up fast is just not something I can achieve any longer, physically speaking. But spiritually speaking, we have all the strength that we need to stand fast. In this context, the words stand fast are translated from a Greek word which was used of those who keep their standing with perseverance and persistence. The same word was also used of those who are firmly established on a foundation of godliness and moral virtue. And with this as our goal, it's crucial for every Christian to stand fast on the foundation of our Savior Jesus Christ. In order to stand fast, you have to stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have to stand fast in faith. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's verse 13 where he declares, Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. That's right, Christians have been called to stand fast in the faith. And we do this by becoming believers who by faith are faithful. And listen, the only way that we can become those beloved believers who are faithful, uh, well, we have to remember that those who stand strong or those who stand fast are standing in the power of the one we're trusting in. In other words, it's not the faith that contains the power. It's the object of the faith. And there's a lot of preachers out there, you know, who are on the big hair network and, you know... They love to tell you that there's power in the faith. No, there's not. If you place your faith in a false God, guess what? There's no power. Why? Because the object of your faith is wrong. The object of the faith has the power. Think about like, a, like, like your garden hose, right? Does water come from your water hose? No, water will come out of your garden hose if you have it 
hooked up to the spigot and you turn it on and the city lets you have some to, to water your grass a little bit every day now. But hey, listen, I'm not telling you to go home and water your lawn because you might get a ticket for that today. But listen, it's not the water hose producing the water. The water hose has to be connected to the spigot, which is connected to the city, which you know, regulates the water and all that sort of stuff. So don't tell me that the water hose contains the water. That's silly. And same with faith. Faith doesn't have the power. It's the object of our faith that has the power. And if the object of your faith is infinitely powerful, then it's the faith that, like the water hose, connects us to the source. And so if you want to stand fast, stand strong, in faith and, and, and you know, become a faithful believer, then you have to be connected to the source who can give you the power to stand fast. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Those who want to stand fast in the faith must remember that Jesus is the one who provides us with the power to stand. We should also consider the importance of the, uh, of the, uh, of the fixing of our faith on the truth of God's word where Jesus is then revealed to us. Because anybody can make up a Jesus, and they often do. You know, you can go watch The Chosen, and and they're putting words into the mouth of Jesus, and you can go listen to what the Mormons say about Jesus, and you can go and, 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 you know, listen to what the, the Jehovah's Witnesses say about Jesus, and everybody's got their version of Jesus. But it's the Bible where we find the clear definition and the clear expression of who Jesus is. And so we have to fix our faith on the truth of God's word so that we can stand fast in the power of Jesus. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in verse 15. Here he declares, brethren, stand fast and and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Here in this verse, Paul is helping his audience to understand the importance of holding the traditions that they were taught. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that Paul wasn't using that word traditions like he was some sort of you know, fiddler on the roof or something. No, instead, this word tradition here, it would be better rendered transmission. And in this context, he's using this word tradition or transmission in reference to the church age principles and precepts that Paul presented to the beloved believers in every church. And in order to make my case, let's consider again how Paul puts it here in our text today. Look with me again at verse 15. There he declares, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions or transmissions which you were taught whether by word or our epistle. So, so these people had received a transmission of information both by word or, say, like you know, a teaching, like what's happening right now. So Paul was teaching things by words, but also there were epistles that were already being produced. I'll remind you that Paul was writing this epistle at a time when the New Testament was still being uh, produced. And while we can't say for sure which of the New Testament books were already written at this point in time, well, there seems to be some evidence that Matthew, Mark, James, and Galatians were already written and in circulation, possibly even 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We also know that uh, Paul had already written 1 Thessalonians, because remember, this is 
Second Thessalonians. And if my math serves me correctly here, uh, this would be then the second of his two epistles to the church in Thessalonica. And so we know that First Thessalonians is already floating around. And it's here in this second epistle where we find Paul instructing his audience to hold tight to the things that he heard him teach when he showed up and taught a Bible study, but also to the epistles which were being written at this period of time. Now, we have the New Testament epistles and the books put together in, in the New Testament canon. And so, you know, Paul would be telling us today to hold on, hold on to those books that you find in your New Testament. Just to be clear, that word hold, which is found there in verse 15, is translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it speaks of those who obtain and retain. As we study the scriptures, we ought to obtain the information and then retain it. The same word was also used of those who keep something carefully and faithfully. What this means is that Paul was encouraging the beloved believers there in Thessalonica to carefully keep the teachings and the words of the epistles with faithful devotion. Or more simply put, beloved believers are those who faithfully keep the truth of God's word so that we can live accordingly. Christian, listen, we've been called to walk in the love of the Lord. And as we walk in the love of the Lord, we become beloved believers who are faithfully serving our Savior in the way that we should. And and listen, we find this standard in the lives of many people mentioned in the New Testament. For example, it's in 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul refers to Timothy as a beloved and faithful son in the Lord. In Ephesians 6, Paul referred to a Christian named Tychicus as a beloved believer or a beloved brother and faithful faithful minister in the Lord. In Colossians 4, Paul referred to the Christian named uh, Onesimus, or Onesimus, as I like to say, but, uh, but he's called a faithful and beloved brother. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter referred to a Christian named Silvanus as a faithful brother. In the light of these examples, there should be no doubt that you know, the faithful believers there in the first century, were beloved believers because of their faithfulness to their calling in Christ. And they should be an example to the rest of us. They should help us to understand that beloved believers are those who faithfully walk according to the will of God, which is revealed in the word of God. I like the way that Paul explains this and and kind of encapsulates this in Hebrews chapter 10. Here he declares, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his Hebrew audience to understand that Christians have not only been called to hold fast to the truth of God's word, but we've also been called to hold fast or to be faithful to our confession and our community of faith. That's right, we've been called to hold on tight 
and to be faithful to our confession to Christ and our community of faith. In other words, uh, those who are beloved believers will faithfully keep our confession of faith as we continue to faithfully attend our fellowship of faith. And, and together, as we provoke one another unto good works and righteousness, we begin to become those beloved believers who don't just love one another, but we be love one another. We love one another with great intensity as together we encourage one another to hold fast to our confession and to our community of faith. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a beloved believer? Am I a beloved believer? If, if Paul were writing the New Testament today, would he refer to you as one of those beloved believers who is faithful in the Lord? Are you a beloved believer or are you just a bemaddened believer who is wasting too much time on Madden NFL 24? Are you a beloved believer? In other words, we should ask, am I a grateful believer who is singing the praises of our Savior together with my Christian community as we have hearts that are filled with gratitude? Is this a good explanation of us? Am I a worshipful believer who is serving the Lord according to the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength? Am I a faithful believer who is holding fast to my confession and my community of faith according to the instructions that we find in God's word? Christian, listen, the beloved believer is grateful and worshipful and faithful and these ought to be true of us. With this as the goal, I remind you that those who want to become those believers who are beloved of the Lord, well, we should learn to walk in the sacrificial love of the Lord because it's the agapeo love of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to become beloved believers. Let's pray.